want to talk with you today about how an upgrade is in your future. An upgrade is in your future. Here's what I mean. Have you ever had this happen where you're checking in for a flight or you're getting a rental car and they say, you're eligible for an upgrade? Now, I had this happen one time when it was legitimate. I've had a lot of other times at rental car counters in particular where they're like, you're eligible for an upgrade. And I say, oh, how much is this upgrade going to cost me? But I had one time where it was a legitimate upgrade, and it was really cool because it was actually when my wife Mel and I, we were flying to Haiti uh, in the process of adopting our youngest daughter. She was born in Haiti. And so we were flying actually from Northern California. It's a very long flight from there to South Florida. And we were checking in, and as we checked in with Delta, Uh, the attendant there said, uh, hey, you and your wife are eligible for an upgrade. And I said, wow, you know, what does this mean? She's just like, well, there's two first-class seats that are open, and we just want to give them to you guys as a free upgrade. We were like, awesome. So that's the only time in my life that I've flown first class on one of those big planes where you have a whole bunch of room to spread out. I mean, I just felt like royalty. It was amazing. It was a free upgrade. I've got another story about an upgrade that is actually a little bit of a reverse upgrade. One time, uh, it was actually shortly after we had moved here, we flew back to Northern California to visit some friends. And so our family of five, I you know, kind of planned everything ahead. Uh, it's a very urban, dense area where you know, parking is limited and you almost don't want to have a car, but we needed to have a car. And so I was very selective of exactly which car would be, you know, small enough to get into parking spots, but big enough for our family of five. And we landed there in Northern California, and we got to the budget rental car counter at 11 p.m. with our suitcases. And uh, the uh, person there at the counter said, "Uh, hey, uh, great news, you're eligible for an upgrade. And I said, "Uh, you know, that's okay. I mean, unless it's just a nicer car inside, we really kind of know exactly the size We need, and uh, as the conversation went on, it became evident that really it wasn't a case of an upgrade. It was a case of they're out of everything, and this is all they have left, and they're going to call it an upgrade. And uh, having very carefully planned, knowing how narrow the streets of San Francisco are and all the up and down hills, and that you're lucky to find a parking spot at all, and if you do, you're going to have to pay for it. You know, we had planned on a certain size of car, and she said, well, you know, here's your free upgrade. Here's a picture of it. Yeah, no joke. That's not a 16-passenger van. That's an 18-passenger van. There was more than one row for every member of our family. And it's 11 p.m. You can imagine me being as spiritual as I am, just how pleased I was with this. I mean, I was just fuming. I was like, this thing won't even fit in a normal parking space, let alone a a miniature parking space like they have in California. I was like, this is just, but this is all they had. It's 11 p.m. So so we drive it to the Airbnb that we're staying at, and we wake up the next morning, and I'm like, you know, trying to talk myself into this. Like, I'm going to have a good attitude. This is going to work. We go out, we do about half a day of, you know, sightseeing and visiting people on these narrow streets. I was just like, there's no way This is going to work. I ended up just taking it back to budget and finding something with one of their competitors. It's what I would call a reverse upgrade. 
I know some of you who are better at grammar are saying, well, isn't that a downgrade? Yes, it is, but let's just call it a reverse upgrade for today because that sounds better to me. I wonder where in your life have you had a reverse upgrade lately? Maybe you've just been looking forward to the holidays and now they're here, but they're here with some health problems. You've been looking forward to getting together with family, but now there's some family who aren't going to make it, or there's some family who are going to make it, but that relationship is now so strained that you're just not sure if you can really look forward to that anymore. Maybe you were thinking, I've been doing such a good job at work, you know, there's got to be a promotion coming my way, and my boss scheduled a meeting, and we're going to meet, and then you met with your boss, and it, it was not the upgrade that you were hoping for. Or maybe you're here today and you don't have a, a big, bad, obvious problem in your life, but you just lack the joy of Christmas. You're kind of going through all the holiday stuff, but you're lacking the wonder. Here's the question we're asking. When your circumstances are lacking, when you get a reverse upgrade, or even worse, when your circumstances are outright painful, how can you experience the joy of Christmas? How can you, if you're in that place, I'll describe how it is for me sometimes. Sometimes, not only at Christmas, but at like kids' birthday parties and other holidays, I will look and everyone's smiling and laughing, but it's almost like I'm watching a movie and there's a plexiglass barrier between me and all the emotion. I see everyone having a good time and I want to as well, but I just can't feel it. Do you ever feel like that? It's almost like if, if the joy and the, the Mary was a, a flavor, it's almost like your, your tongue is wrapped in saran wrap. I know that's a, a weird image, but it's like, like you just can't taste it. You know what I'm talking about? If you're in that place, how can you break through to actually absorb the joy and the wonder? I mean, if there were a way in these next 30 minutes or so, that, that you could change something in your heart so you could actually taste the flavors again, feel the joy again, would you want to know how to do that? Well, we're going to find the answer to that question right in the Christmas story. Because uh, one of the things that we maybe miss about the Christmas story is that it wasn't a sentimental Hallmark movie Christmas. It's not like Mary and Joseph are gathered with all their favorite people around a perfectly decorated Christmas tree in a beautiful ski lodge that the grumpy CEO from out of town had a transformation and built. It's not like this perfect setting, and yet it's full of joy. The joy doesn't come from the setting. The joy doesn't come from the sentimental moment. It comes from something more significant. In fact, that's part of what's happening here in Luke 1, verse 39. This is right after the angel has appeared to Mary, who was young and engaged, and said, you're going to get pregnant, the baby's from God, it's going to be the Messiah. And it says, a few days later, Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea. She wanted to get out of the town where she grew up before she starts showing, because people are going to have so many questions. Now, we don't know all the exact timing of this, but we know from one of the other Gospels that Joseph, Mary's fiance, considered divorcing her. Like, really seriously, he was about to, and then an angel appears to him and says, don't worry, Mary's been faithful to you. This baby actually is from God. 
What we don't know is that time that Joseph was considering putting her away quietly, divorcing her, we don't know if that was 30 seconds or 30 days. We know Mary's going to be here in the hill country of Judea for three months, and Joseph's not with her, and her parents are not with her. This is a time for her. There's, there's fear. It's not going the way she wanted, and I just want to encourage you, if you're facing discomfort this Christmas your Christmas is a lot more like Mary's and Joseph's than you might realize. In fact, if we fast forward a little bit through the story, once Mary does give birth about nine months from here, she's not going to give birth in a, a nice hospital. She's not going to have an epidural. There's not going to be any nurses there. There's not even going to be any clean sheets. She's going to give birth surrounded by farm animals in a barn. That's not magical. Uh, not only that, but it's going to get worse after that. A king is going to get angry and try to, to take the life of their baby, and they're going to have to run for their lives. Then Mary and Joseph, when they go to the temple to dedicate Jesus, a prophet is going to pray this beautiful prophecy over Jesus, that he's the Messiah. And it's like, wow, this amazing moment. And then in the middle of it, in Luke 2.35, he looks at Mary and he says, a sword will pierce your spirit. He's talking about the moment in the future when Jesus will be hanging on the cross, paying for the sins of the world, and Mary's going to be standing near the foot of that cross, looking up at her son, bleeding and gasping. So here's Mary. She's run to her relative Elizabeth. Elizabeth is about six months along, and Mary has just started. And Mary's going to be there for the final trimester of Elizabeth's pregnancy and the first trimester of her pregnancy. And what you need to know is that for Mary, for Joseph, for many of these characters, they're facing discomfort. They're facing hostility. When they have to run for their lives from Herod, they're even going to face the possibility of death. And that's all part of the Christmas story. Yet, within the discomfort, they have this joy that cannot be extinguished. Let's learn how they did so that we can as well. Mary responds to Elizabeth in verse 46. And you can read this entire beautiful response of Mary in your life application study Bible. If you don't have one, go to our connection corner and we'll give you one. Mary responds. She says, oh, how my soul praises the Lord. How my spirit rejoices. So here she is going through a storm of emotions and what is she doing in the storm? She's worshiping God, and it's resulting in joy in her spirit. So back to our initial question, how do you experience joy if your circumstances are lacking? Here's the answer from Mary's example in the word of God. You can experience the joy of Christmas, no matter what you're going through. You can experience the joy of Christmas today by worshiping Jesus and very specifically, worshiping him as king. That is, as the one who has the power to resolve your pain. He might not resolve it immediately or today or tomorrow. But you have this faith when you worship him as king. That even if he doesn't resolve it immediately, when he does resolve it, he's going to resolve it eternally. He's going to resolve it permanently. You see, when Jesus was born, he was actually birthing a kingdom where there's no death, 
where there's no cancer, where there's no divorce, there's no sickness, there's no disease, there's no injustice. And when you worship Jesus, not merely as a baby or a good teacher, but specifically as the king of the universe who brought in a kingdom that you get to be part of, where in the future, whatever pain you have right now will be resolved, you worship Jesus that way. And it brings you joy regardless of your circumstances. Jesus isn't just a cute idea or a sentimental feeling. He's the king of the universe who defeated death and defeated sin. Well, let's trace this connection between joy and worshiping Jesus as king. We see the same theme with the magi or the wise men. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 2. You've heard about these wise men. It's usually depicted as three of them. And they traveled from a foreign land following a star. And what I love about the Magi is that a lot of the people in the Christmas story were Jewish. And they had been raised on the first half of the Bible called the Old Testament. But the Magi or the wise men, they were not. They were from a totally different culture. And maybe you're here with us this weekend or you're watching online and Maybe you're more like the Magi. You weren't raised in church. You don't really know a lot about the Bible. But like the Magi, you've been seeking the light. They kept following this light. And as they did, they did so with an open heart. And they started to hear about these prophecies about a Jewish Messiah who would come not only for the Jewish people, but for all people. And who would bring in a kingdom that that doesn't just defeat Rome or China, or whatever, but actually defeats death, defeats sin. And these magi, as they journey, they start to believe. And I would just invite you, wherever you are in your faith journey, to keep seeking the light here and to start worshiping Jesus as a Messiah with us. These magi, or wise men, when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. And then look at the connection between joy and worship. They entered the house. This is right after Jesus has been born. And they bowed down and they worshiped him. You see how joy and worship go hand in hand? And then I love this. As they're worshiping this baby who they believe now is the Messiah, they do what they would do in the presence of any other king. Now, you see, a fiat currency, paper money, didn't really exist yet. So when rich people would travel, they would travel with a treasure chest full of commodities. They have their literal gold and silver and myrrh and frankincense and other commodities with them as they travel along. And so just as they would do in the presence of any other king to show honor, they each open their treasure chests and they present, here's my most valuable thing that I have. And they present it to the king. We see the same theme of joy and worship in the words of Zechariah. We learned about him in part one of this series. Zechariah has a a beautiful praise to God in Luke 1. And he says this, out of worship, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty savior From the royal line of his servant David. We learned last week the significance that Jesus being in the lineage of David is part of him being king. So 
Mary's worshiping Jesus as king and she has joy. The wise men are worshiping Jesus as king and they have joy. Zechariah is worshiping Jesus as king, believing that Jesus will rule and reign and resolve evil and death and all the problems of humanity once and for all. You could put it this way, worship Jesus as the king whose unending kingdom will resolve your temporary pain. Now, this kind of worship is what I would call a faith upgrade. It takes a, a, a bigger degree of worship to worship Jesus in your pain than to just worship Jesus when everything's going well or to worship Jesus when he can immediately fix your problem. I just wonder right now, would you identify the downgrade in your life, the reverse upgrade? Is it health? Is it finances? Is it relationship? Is it career? Where's the reverse upgrade in your life? And will you right now choose to worship Jesus with a faith that while we pray that he'll resolve it today or tomorrow, that even if he doesn't, he will resolve it in kingdom come and you will see relief from that suffering because he's a king who gives you a life beyond your time on earth. I just wonder if you'd answer honestly, just between you and God, have you worshiped Jesus lately? I don't just mean have you sung some songs that we call worship songs. I mean from your heart. Have you had a moment lately where you've said, Jesus, I worship you as almighty God. I submit to you. I surrender to you. I trust that you're a good king. And I don't understand why I'm going through this pain, but I'm going to worship you in my pain. Have you done that lately? So many times in my life that I just have to remind myself that the kingdom of heaven, while it has started and we get little appetizers and tastes of it as we worship him on this earth, what we're really living for is beyond this earth. And there's times when there's struggle and difficulty here that I just have to remind myself, Jesus wins in the end. My king wins. And I'm just going to latch onto that and I'm going to hold on to that. You know, when you do that, you unlock something, you open your heart, and you can start to taste the joy again. When we worship Jesus for who he is, not just a, not just a baby and not even just a, a good teacher and not even just God on earth, but the king of the universe who humbled himself to come down into our broken form. When every other king would say, pay me a tax, do this or else, that the highest king of kings would instead humble himself. Not only rescue us out of our pain and suffering, but experience our pain and suffering with us. An empathetic, compassionate king who says, I know what it feels like to be hungry. I know what it feels like to have someone you love die. I know what physical pain feels like. I know what emotional rejection feels like. This is the king that you worship. Well, here's an honest question for you. And this is part of how we teach the Bible here at Connection Point. We'll often take the, the hard questions that people are maybe afraid to ask in church, but we're all thinking. And we like to hit those head on because God answers many of them. 
So the question that some of you are probably thinking, and I've thought it at times in my life, is this. Well, John, I have been worshiping Jesus as king. But in my life, it sure doesn't look and feel like he's a very powerful king. I mean, I'm worshiping him as king, but I'm still having to go through chemotherapy. Or I'm worshiping him as king, but that person, that estranged relationship, they still won't talk to me. I want to answer that question, what if you're worshiping Jesus as king, but your life feels like he's not being a good king? By going even deeper into this story, in Matthew chapter 2, we get this moment with Joseph. It's right after the wise men have given these very expensive gifts. And he has this dream, and I'll read this verse, and then we'll unpack it a little bit. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, the angel says. Flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. Now, I just want you to imagine that you're Joseph for a moment. I want you to really put yourself in his position, okay? First, you're, you're uh, engaged. You've got your whole life ahead of you. You've been raised that you're going to marry one person. You're going to have kids. You're going to have offspring. That is kind of the focal point of life in your culture. And then you find out that your fiance is pregnant and you know you're not the dad. And you're on this emotional roller coaster. But then an angel appears and says the baby's from God. And you say, okay, I'm sticking with it. And you think it over. It's like, well, I mean, if he's the Messiah, how bad could it be to be the Messiah's dad, right? Like that's probably going to be good. Had to go through Joseph's mind, I would think. And then wise men show up, and they're pulling these gifts out of their treasure chest. I mean, Joseph's human, right? If it's me, it's like, okay, that's a year's salary. That one's two years' salary, right? Joseph's a normal human being. And these wise men show up with these gifts. It's like, okay, this is what it's like to be Messiah's dad. Random rich people from other countries show up with super expensive gifts. Not terrible. And then you go to bed that night, and an angel appears to you and is like, get up, grab your wife and your son, and flee, not only flee, but flee to Egypt. For the Jewish people, Egypt is where their ancestors had been slaves. Egypt is a hostile foreign country. It's got a lot of emotional baggage with it. It's not somewhere that a Jewish person ever wants to go. And this angel says, flee to Egypt. And then look at this. Stay there in Egypt until I tell you to return. Here's why, Joseph. Because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Can you just imagine the emotions in the middle of the night? I mean, if I get awakened in the middle of the night, it is not pretty. I'm I'm groggy. I'm confused. If, If I had been in Joseph's position, I would have had to ask the angel two or three times. Like, whoa, 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 wait, wait. Did I get this right? Like, you're saying I've got to leave now for Egypt. And Joseph wakes Mary up, and and they go. That night, verse 14, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and with Mary, his mother. Herod was furious. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two and under. This is part of the Christmas story. This horrific struggle between good and evil, facing death. And I love this verse 22. This is after they've stayed in Egypt, which, by the way, have you ever had this happen where you get a little windfall, some kind of money from something, insurance or inheritance or something, you get a little windfall and you're like, great, 
we're finally going to get ahead. And then like the next day, the transmission goes out and the water heater goes out. You get to the end of the month and you pay the bills and you're like, oh, great. The windfall that we thought would get us ahead just barely kept us above water. It's probably kind of similar for Mary and Joseph. They get these really expensive gifts and they're like, whoa, we're getting ahead. They're going to use those gifts. They're going to have to liquidate the gold and frankincense and myrrh because they're going to a foreign land where they're going to have to figure out where to stay, what to eat. But here's the thing. God was providing for them. God was guiding them. It wasn't sentimental. It wasn't hallmark feel good. But God was looking out for them. After a while, the angel appears and says to Joseph, you can now go back to Israel because Herod, who wanted to kill your son, he's now dead. But Joseph, having heard the stories of all the boys who've been killed by this evil ruler, Herod, he's like, I don't want to go back. And to me, this is one of my favorite verses in the Christmas story. Joseph was afraid to go there. I love it that God put that in there. It's the parts of the Christmas story we don't focus on, but that's most like us, isn't it? I wonder where in your life are you afraid to go there? Where in your life, maybe God's called you to something. I remember feeling that way, leaving the sunny beaches of California for the beautiful Decembers of Indiana. <laughs> afraid to go there. But God makes it clear. Other times, it's almost like we don't even have a choice. It's like we're on this conveyor belt of life. And we see our body aging and we're like, I, I don't really want another birthday. I don't really want more gray hair. I don't want to get older. But it's this conveyor belt. We just can't, we can't stop it. We have to go there. Where in your life are you afraid to go there? I hope you know that whatever that fear is, that's why Jesus came. He wants to guide you through going there. For all of us, there will be a moment where we breathe our final breath on earth. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you know that it's not your final moment of existence. We go through things that we don't want to go through. Because we're in a world that's broken by sin and by evil. Where in your life are you afraid to go there? Here's what's beautiful about Joseph's example. Joseph was afraid, but he still obeyed. Think about that for you. Joseph was afraid, but he still obeyed. You can feel like you don't want to go there, and God's okay with that. It's okay that you don't want to do the thing that God's calling you to do or that life is forcing you to do, but obey God anyway. See, God always provides his worshipers with the joy and the strength that you're going to need to play your part in his story. God gave Joseph just enough joy, just enough strength, that even though he didn't want to go there, even though he was afraid, even though he didn't feel it some days, he still played his part in the story. And that's what happens when you worship God. We say, God, I worship you in such a way that I believe you've got a master plan. You're going to work it all for good. I don't see it all, but I trust you. I'm going to keep worshiping you. As you do that, he'll provide you the joy that you need. He'll provide you the strength that you need. 
Because you see, your life here on earth is not about mere survival. That thing that you're going through, uh, you're not designed to just merely survive it. You have a role to play. This story of God redeeming humanity, it continues. And God has a role for you to play in the story. There are some people in your family who will never hear about Jesus except for through you. And that's your role to play. There are some people in your workplace, perhaps, or in your school, or in your neighborhood, and if you had small faith, if you had economy faith, basic entry-level faith, you'd think, I just got to get through this, this trial, but as you upgrade your faith, willingly saying, I, I'm going to choose faith, I'm going to choose to worship in the suffering, you look around and you realize, wow, God put me in this cancer treatment so I could talk to this other person who has cancer who doesn't have the hope of eternal life. Or God put me in this dysfunctional family with these super weird people and I would rather celebrate Christmas by myself on a beach in Fiji than be with all these people. But he put me in this family for a reason because they won't listen to anyone else about God and they even make fun of me when I talk to them about God. But I'm here to play a role in the story of God. You keep worshiping him and you play your role in the story. It is almost like having a script for your life. And there are times that you're doing the reading and you think to the director, God, I don't want this part. Can I play her part? Can I play his part instead? But as part of worshiping Jesus as king is saying, I believe that you put me in this part knowing what needs to be done in the world, and I'm going to worship you through it. There's a beautiful promise for you in 2 Peter 1, verse 3. God says this of you as you choose to worship him. He says, in Christ, you have everything necessary for life and for godliness. Everything you're ever going to need for your life, everything you're ever going to need for your godliness is in Christ. Worship him as king and you tap into it. God always provides for his worshipers. And this would be true for Mary. Because just like that prophet said. Someday she would stand in Jerusalem. Looking up at three crosses. Where there are two hardened criminals. And there's her perfectly innocent son. Gasping and bleeding. She's going to watch him and tears are going to be rolling down her face and she's going to have to believe in that moment that almighty God has a plan that's bigger than one lifetime. And she's going to choose to believe. She's going to worship through the storm. I would call that upgrading her faith. Those shepherds who were rejoicing when the angels appeared and were told that they went and told everyone this good news. I just imagine those shepherds when they hear that the whole nation has turned against Jesus and the confusion they must have felt. How could people turn against him? Sometimes you might feel that in this world. You might see uh, Christians or even other people in a country that has had so much access to the word of God and you might think, how could people turn away from this? But you keep worshiping the king through it. You see, Mary and Joseph and Zechariah and Elizabeth, they knew the word of God enough. And they believed the promises enough to know that Christmas is not about one or two sentimental moments around a fireplace. That Christmas is, in fact, about warfare between God and Satan. 
It's about a violent struggle between life and death. It's about all-out hostility between angels and demons as they wrestle for control of humanity. And that Christmas is, in fact, the moment when we cowering in the face of death that we cannot defeat and sin in ourselves that we can't stop, see a stronger warrior step onto the battlefield of humanity. A warrior who says, I will slay death and evil just like my great-great-great-great-grandfather King David slayed a different giant. Christmas is about a battle And if you are in troubles and you're thinking, do my troubles disprove Christmas? Do they disprove this good news of Jesus? I would challenge you today that actually they prove the very claims of Jesus who said, I am the light of the world. But who predicted that in a world of spiritual darkness, most people would choose to reject him. Who predicted and told us as his followers, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I've called you to a higher world, an eternal world. I've overcome the troubles of this world. Your own troubles offer you this opportunity to upgrade your faith. And I know I'm like you. I don't want the upgrade some days, okay? I'm like, give me the economy basic entry-level faith. I don't want to have to worship through suffering. I want to be clear that the the faith that gets you into heaven, it's not like you get into heaven based on how perfect is your faith. The only way into heaven is through Jesus' work on the cross, and your only way to be part of that is simply believe and receive. And it's not the quality of your faith or the quantity of your faith, it's the object of your faith. You believe that Jesus is the king of the universe, and he died on the cross for you. And bear with me, theologians might get upset with me here, but I would call that saving faith For today, that basic or economy faith, you you got your plane ticket, you're in the kingdom of God, and your salvation doesn't depend on your performance. But then you've got these days or months or years on planet earth, and God has work for you to do. And now that you have a new identity as a son or a daughter of the king, and you've been set free from sin, and you know you have eternal life, you get to choose what you're going to do with your life. Are you going to live for eternity or are you going to just live for today? And what I'm suggesting to you today is when you choose to say, I will live for eternity, that you're upgrading your faith. Same destination, but it's a luxurious faith. It's a first class faith. Here's a situation none of us want to be in. The ticket counter. I just wonder in your life, where are you standing at that counter as it relates to a relationship or your health or your career or your dreams? And I just wonder if today God's calling you to to upgrade your faith, to say, "I, I believe in Jesus not only for the forgiveness of my sins and my eternal life, but I'm also gonna choose, I'm gonna worship him as king no matter how uncomfortable my life on earth gets. Think about this. When Jesus did that first public miracle, he turned water into wine at a wedding feast. The people who drank that wine that Jesus had just you know, transformed from water, it, it, must, it tasted really good, we're told in the passage. 
That didn't take a lot of faith, did it? I'd call that entry-level basic economy faith. How about the people who Jesus is there and they're hungry and he takes a one little lunch meal from a kid and he multiplies it into food for 5,000 people and you watch it happen and then you taste it and you're like, wow, this is like the best food I've ever had. That didn't take a lot of faith. That didn't cost them anything. How about this? Believing that your son is the king of the universe because the word of God says so and angels told you so. Believing your son is the king of the universe while you're running scared under the cover of the darkness of night because the actual king is sending soldiers to kill him. I would call that an upgraded faith. I would call that a luxurious faith, a first class faith. You see, first-class faith worships Jesus as king even when it looks like Herod will win. And my invitation to you today really is, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, join us by believing in him. And for all of us who believe in Jesus, would you guys join me in in first class? By that I mean, would you say with me, I'm going to worship Jesus as king even when it looks like cancer is going to win. Even when it looks like separation or divorce is going to win. Even when it looks like evil in the world or racism or hatred or abuse or alcoholism. In my life, it looks like those things are going to win. But I'm going to worship Jesus as king anyway. I'm just going to choose a luxurious faith. A top level faith that says I worship him as king. Even when life forces me to go where I don't want to go. I would suggest to you today that when you choose to worship Jesus in this way, even while your circumstances scream that he's not the king, that you are indeed upgrading your faith. Now, I don't have time to unpack it, but in Hebrews chapter 11, God gives us a whole chapter of people who chose to upgrade their faith. People like Abraham and Moses. And what that chapter tells us is this, God rewards faith. And it tells me this, that when you're struggling to keep worshiping Jesus as king, even while your life is difficult, that God sees that. God rewards that. God applauds that. So let me give you very simple applications. How do you worship Jesus as your king? Here's three really simple ways, straight from the Christmas story. The Magi did all three of these. They believed his promises. Are you hearing, you're like, I want to upgrade my faith. I want to worship Jesus as king. Then believe his promises. And part of that is knowing his promises. If you don't yet have a life application study Bible, get one. And we'll show you how to find the promise of God that applies to your situation. That he works all things together for the good of those who are called. Another way, I'm trying to help you here. If you want to get the saran wrap off your tongue, you want to break through the plexiglass barrier, you want joy in your heart again, then align your schedule with what Jesus is doing in the world. Those wise men, they set aside their entire life to pursue this light and then this Messiah. Align your schedule with Jesus. What does that mean? It means you're engaged in worship every weekend. It's not like you plan your week and if there's time, we'll go to church or be part of church like That is the center. That's the high point of your week. 
and everything else builds around it. And then the same with being in a small group or with serving. Align your schedule. That is you worshiping. That opens your heart to receive the joy again. How about opening your treasure chest like those wise men did? Each of us have very different treasure chests, right? A high school student, which is someone who had a 30-year career in a really productive industry and a big retirement account, different treasure chests. God knows what each of ours are. Will you open yours? These are three ways that you can worship Jesus as king. Which one will you choose? When I think about placing hope in a better future, really believing Jesus' kingdom is real. Uh, there's this one story that always comes to my mind. It's a true story. It happened in 1950 in December in Korea. Now, a little bit of world history review here. Korea is now two countries. There's North Korea, which is uh, communist. It is one of the most repressive governments in the world. There are still concentration camps with razor wire fences. There's often famine in North Korea. It's incredibly repressive. There are no human rights, as we would call them. It's a terrible, terrible place to live, one of the worst in the world. But there's a border, and just south of that is South Korea, which is one of the wealthiest nations in the world. And a very free, prosperous nation. Well, that all came out of the Korean War. And in December of 1950, uh, American and South Korean troops were retreating because Chinese and North Korean troops had pushed them down the Korean Peninsula. And that's what formed that border between these two very different existences. Well, as that was happening, there's this huge retreat. And this ship, the USS Meredith, was a cargo ship for the Navy. And it was full of all kinds of supplies. The captain of the ship, Captain LaRue, decided to throw everything overboard and take on North Korean people who were trying to get out of the country. They knew how terrible existence was in North Korea. And, and without thinking, they left their homes. They left their fortunes. They left everything because they could see where it was headed. And they didn't even know where this ship was going. They just knew it has to be better. And they lined up and they stood shivering in the December cold for hours as a small Navy crew threw everything overboard so that this ship, which was designed to carry about 60 people maximum, could take on 14,000 of these people who had faith that they could get to a better land. Here's a picture of them standing Shoulder to shoulder. They would stand like this. These are the ones on top. And then there were five levels below. Standing shoulder to shoulder for four days. From December 22nd to December 26th. They would spend Christmas Day 1950 on this ship. In that time, all they had was whatever food or water they had brought with them. Five babies were born in that time. And there were no doctors or nurses. There was one medic for the ship who had to go around and attend to these five babies. The descendants, when that ship eventually landed in what is now South Korea, the descendants of these 14,000 people now number over a million people. Uh, in fact, one of the grandchildren is now the president of South Korea. And for the families that took the risk to say, we have faith in a better future. We're going to leave everything we know believing there's a better kingdom. Their kids, their grandkids, 
go to great universities, go on normal vacations like we would. And for the families that didn't, their kids have continued to live in that repressive slavery of North Korea. In fact, there are stories of some families where a mom or a dad got on the ship and the other one said, I'll, I'll stay behind and I'll catch up with you, but they weren't able to. I just, for, for those of us who we really are believing in Jesus as King, I want to give you a challenge for this week. These Christmas Eve invites that you saw on your seat when you walked in, or if you're watching online, you can text the word invite. Who in your family isn't on the ship that's going to heaven? Who in your workplace, who in your school, who on your sports team, who in your neighborhood, you don't know if, if they're in Christ. What if we spent these next six days as we lead up to our Christmas Eve services, we just said, we're gonna make sure everyone we know and love knows about this king who can overcome death. I want you to just imagine for a moment your favorite people around a Thanksgiving dinner or a Christmas dinner. This is uh, me and Mel with Mel's side of the family and my kids are down there at the end of the table from a couple years ago. I just want you to imagine the people you love the most around a table. Laughing, telling stories, enjoying good food. I want you to imagine those people are all there and get this, you didn't have to make the food or do the dishes. And there's no bill at the end of the meal. Did you know that this is how Jesus describes heaven? In Revelation 19, he calls it the marriage supper of the lamb. The same Jesus who ended his last night with his disciples, just like this. The God who designed you to laugh and be loved and be known says, in the kingdom that comes, you're going to eat, you're going to taste. And you know, I look at that picture of my family and I, I think, you know, 10 years from now, how we'll all be older. 50 years from now, 80 years from now, it's just the kids at the end left, right? There's a kingdom where you can be with the people you love a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, 2,000 years from now. And the food is good and there's no death. There's no sickness. There's no disease. There's no racism. This is the kingdom that Jesus brought and he left us here on earth to gather other people into it. Who do you want at your table in heaven? Who are you gonna invite this week? Let's live with the first class faith. This says, even if I have to go through some suffering on earth so that I can get some more people in heaven, I'll go through that temporary pain because I believe in where I'm going and I care enough to get people there with me. Would you stand with me as we just pray that together, Father? We're a room full of broken people and others online around the country. We just come to you right now. You're asking us to upgrade our faith and in a lot of ways, we don't want to. We liked our life the way it was going. But we submit to you as king and Lord, today we choose to upgrade our faith. We choose a luxurious faith. We choose a first-class faith. We choose to worship you as king, even in our suffering. We choose to go there, even though we don't want to go there.
because we believe in an eternal kingdom that you are king of and we believe you've placed us here to gather more worshipers for you, to rescue the lost. So Lord, I pray right now for every family member, every classmate, every relative who's far from you, would you use us this Christmas to gather them here at our Christmas services and Holy Spirit, do a work in their hearts. Draw them to salvation. Draw them to restoration. Draw them to return to you. And God, for everyone in our movement who's hurting right now, would you give them joy? Would you give them strength? Just as you did for Joseph, for Mary, that we would faithfully play our part in your story, choosing a first-class faith as we follow you, as we worship you, Jesus. King of kings, we pray in your name. Amen.